Welcome, everybody, to Roger's List. We are the podcast where we are watching every single movie on Roger Ebert's list of the great movies. And my name is Steve Guttley, and it's okay. I do have a big ass. <laughs> and my name is Michaela Nicholson, and I am not crazy. I'm unusual. <laughs> it's true. It's true. <laughs> Today, we are talking about A Woman Under the Influence, a confusingly titled movie that doesn't really have much to do with drugs, I suppose. No, we never really see her under the influence. <laughs> not necessarily, mm-hmm. but uh, before we get into that we need to look back on our episode last week (gasps) those are time warp sounds courtesy of Michaela Nicholson Uh, last week we talked about the movie Cleo from 5 to 7 a movie both of us love uh, by Agnes Varda Mm -hmm. reading the essay I was so happy to see our boy Roger standing up for Agnes Varda Uh, I love one of the early quotes in this Varda is sometimes referred to as the godmother of the French New Wave I have been guilty of that myself Nothing could be more unfair. Yes. Varda is its very soul, and only the fact that she is a woman, I fear, prevented her from being routinely included with Godard, Truffaut, René, Chabrol, Rivette, Romer, or for that matter, her husband, Jacques Demy. Mm -hmm. Amazing. I think that Mm -hmm. echoes our sentiments, too. We were talking about that. Like, why isn't she considered one of these Mm -hmm. foundational people when she literally got there first? Mm -hmm. She literally got there first and created movies that have aged better. Yeah. And, like, honestly are better than a lot of those films. They are. Ah. Yeah, I think that echoed our sentiments pretty well from that. And it's also clear that Ebert has a great deal of, like, affection for her, not just as a filmmaker, but as a person. I love that. He said, Agnes Varda is one of the nicest people I've ever met. There is Mm -hmm. no other way to put it. And he referenced multiple times where he, uh, as, like, made social visits to her house. and like. I love that now the image of... Roger Ebert and Agnes Varda hanging out gets to live in my head. I know, it's right? It's really sweet. Like, just at her estate with Jacques Demy and, like, just hanging yeah. out and talking movies and being yeah. all French. I, uh. I like that idea, mm-hmm. you know? I, Ebert, like, maintained friendships with these people that he critiqued, mm-hmm. which is kind of unusual. Like, I think for a lot of film critics of his age and even now, you want, like, kind of an intellectual distance there. Mm-hmm. Like... Because what happens if you're like super close friends with Agnes Varda and then she makes a movie that you hate, you know, mm-hmm. like that that's going to put a strain on your relationship. But that didn't ever seem to be a problem with Ebert. Like, mm-hmm. I know he was close friends with like Peter O'Toole and like Jason Patrick and like uh, uh, Ava DuVernay and all these cool people. Yeah. Like, I don't know. So he found a way to to mix those two worlds in an yeah. interesting way, I think. Maybe it speaks to his like decency as a human being. Yes. <laughs> in, in in spite of being a critic. I think he's also just like he he was kind of a social butterfly. He mm-hmm. he uh yeah. he was like a society dude and he liked kind of being out <laughs> and about in the world a yeah. little bit. A well-connected bro. Yeah. Was. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Very <laughs> much so. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, um, yeah. Well, uh one of my favorite things uh about this essay was that he talked about the beaches of Agnes in this one particular scene. So I'll go ahead and read that. Um, She gave us the most poetic shot about cinema I have ever seen were two old fishermen who were young when she first filmed them um, in La Pointe Cour, I believe, um, Mm -hmm. watched themselves on a screen. Yes, and the screen and the 16-millimeter projector itself are both mounted on an old market cart that they push through the nighttime streets of the village, which is echoing the scene that they're watching. So I kind—I mean, I feel like that kind of illustrates the kind of documentarian she was. She was always trying to find these like sort of clever and cute moments to recreate. Um, and she was always sort of playfully interacting with her own work in that way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that is a really remarkable scene of the Beaches of Agnes. And I'm glad that he brought it up. I need to check this out. And I've definitely been motivated to watch more of Agnes Varda's yeah. works because I've yes, only yes, seen the two at this yes, point. Yes, yes, so yes, yes. yeah, awesome movie. If you haven't watched Cleo from five to seven yet, go check it out. You know what? It's mm-hmm. 90 minutes of your time and yes. you're going to love it. Mm-hmm. What uh, else are you doing? What watching else are you TikToks? doing? What are, you're watching them TikToks <laughs> with them kids. What are they doing? They're dancing. Mm-hmm. They're dancing. Do what? You, you, you could be you watching that's a cool Cleo thing? dancing. Cleo dances. So. There's kittens in Cleo. Come yeah. on. Come on. What else could you ask for? Anyway. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Let's talk about something that really doesn't have any kittens in it. No. No, nothing kittenish a about dancing, this movie. Though. A little bit of dancing. Yeah. Yes. Plenty of dancing. Mm-hmm. The movie we're talking about today is A Woman Under the Influence. Mm-hmm. This was released November 18th, 1974. Mm-hmm. It was directed by John Cassavetes, and it is an American production starring Jenna Rollins and Peter Falk. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Uh, this is a really interesting one to talk about. I think this is going to be our only Cassavetes oh, movie. Really? 
on the list as a director yeah. at least he might pop up as an actor a few times oh, cool. Cassavetes is a he, he was a fascinating figure because mm-hmm. he's one of those who I, he he almost found equal success as like a filmmaker and an actor in a way that a lot of people of his generation really didn't mm-hmm. and he wasn't just like you know, oh, I popped out, pop in and make a movie every once in a while, like a Kenneth Branagh type. Like he mm-hmm. was kind of a visionary, experimental, interesting mm-hmm. filmmaker. Yeah, a pioneer, as it were. Yeah, but he also got to have a thriving film career, like in front of the camera. So that's that's pretty cool. He was kind of one of those old school, like 40s, 50s, 60s, like macho men, like lots of... Uh, Lots of macho hubris in his movies. Lots mm-hmm. of tough guy stuff. But yeah. there's still a good like emotional Have core. Have you seen other Cassavetes movies? Uh, I'm trying to remember off the top of Killing my of head. Killing of a Chinese bookie. I've seen that one. Uh, yeah, I've opening seen. Opening night. No, I think I think it's just these two. Okay, yeah, cool. Killing a Chinese bookie in this one. I've seen. And I've seen him act in movies. Of yeah. Course. Have you seen Mikey and Nikki? No. Oh. I love that movie. I it's so I, good. I hear that's great. I know uh, uh, Nathan Rabin is a writer I really yeah. admire. He uh, he wrote an essay for the Criterion Collection of that movie, yeah. but I still that's have not dope. gotten to you it. Should, you should watch that one. Um, I have seen, okay, so this I think was my first back in like 2014. And then I saw Opening Night and Minnie and Moskowitz back hmm. uh, when I went to Austin last year. Austin Film Society, I think, was in the middle of a Cassavetes retrospective. So that's the one that I caught. And Gina Rollins was in both of them, was in Opening Night and and Minnie and Moskowitz. And she gave stellar performances in both. But I have to say this one is still my favorite. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This is a pretty incredible movie. Yeah. Uh, a little bit about Cassavetes. He was born in New York and he had early aspirations to be an actor. Uh, he went to various upper crust boarding schools as a young man, but he kept getting expelled because he just straight up didn't do his work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was accepted into the American Academy of Dramatic Arts in 1952, and he would quickly strike up a relationship with fellow student Jenna Rollins, Aww. who he would marry in 1954. Uh, by 1956, Cassavetes was teaching his own acting style, which he kind of developed as like the the antidote to the method. You know, he, he thought that... Um, he, you know, he. I, I, I'm trying to find a way to explain. It. Like, like uh, method actors can get so very up their own ass, <laughs> and like a Joaquin Phoenix, is uh, right? Mm-hmm. And to the point where it's making things unpleasant for everyone else. And he's <laughs> Casavetti's is like, no, no. Look, you can use your personal experience to inform your character, but at the end of the day, you have to remember you're playing a character. You're mm-hmm. you're acting. You're performing. So you know that it was an interesting counterpart to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he found a lot of work in supporting roles in low-rent TV shows and a couple of movies for a few years. And eventually he earned enough money to finance his debut film as a director, a movie called Shadows, which came out in 1959. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, I need to look into this. There's a story about this movie where, like, there's an entirely different version of Shadows that exists that oh, Jenna Rollins absolutely refuses to let anyone see. Oh, is she in it? Yeah, yeah, oh, okay. she's in it. Uh, and I guess it was, like, almost entirely improvised and she just... She hates it and huh. will not let anybody see it. Oh, entirely different. Entirely different movie because oh. it was like, yeah, they're, they're both heavily improvised. Mm-hmm. So it came out as a totally different yeah. movie. Wow. Um, but yeah, the film didn't have too much of an impact. But uh, around that time, Cassavetti's acting career had really started to pick up. And in addition to earning more regular TV roles, he signed a seven-year deal with Paramount, mm-hmm. which led to roles in movies like The Killers and the movie The Dirty Dozen, uh, where he earned a Best Supporting Actor nomination for that movie. I did not realize that. Huh. Uh, Very good in that movie. Uh, He made his second feature as a director, uh, Faces, in 1968. And that was a critical smash. That was nominated for Best Original Screenplay, Best Supporting Actor, and Best Supporting Actress at the Oscars, which was a pretty big deal for him. Mm -hmm. Uh, After that, he named his uh, distribution company Faces International, which Mm -hmm. we see in this movie, after Mm -hmm. that movie. Mm -hmm. So after that, uh, yeah, he... He landed his most notable acting role shortly after that, 1969. He's the second lead in Rosemary's Baby, Mm -hmm. which I always forget about that. He's Rosemary's husband. That is wild. I just saw that for the first time maybe like two years ago. And it's it was weird seeing him as like a wholesale evil dude. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, he's he's quite good in that movie. He's quite Mm -hmm. menacing. Yeah. Uh, after that, yeah, he scored a few more starring roles, movies like Mikey and Nikki, where mm-hmm. he, he co-stars with the lead of this movie, Peter mm. Falk. Oh, and I love Peter Falk. He's like so Peter good. Falk? I love Peter Falk. Ah. Uh, he also starred in Brian De Palma's The Fury and in a horror film called The Incubus. Uh, in total, Cassavetes would direct 12 movies in his career, 11 of which starred Rollins, uh, which is pretty great. 
His last movie was 1986's Big Trouble, and it almost doesn't count as his because it wasn't his script. Mm -hmm. He took over production midway through after the original director quit, Mm -hmm. and the studio interfered so much with it that he basically just wiped his hands of it. He didn't want anything to do with that movie. And his son is Nick Cassavetes, right, who made The Notebook? He did, yeah, absolutely. That's probably why Gina Rollins is in it. That is exactly why, (laughs) yeah, yeah. I wonder... Did John Cassavetes get to see that movie, The Notebook? He did not. Okay. No, unfortunately. I wonder what he would have thought about it. You know, Cassavetes, he had, a, he had a reputation for being tough, for being kind of mercurial, but he was also like straight up an actor's director. Actors mm-hmm. loved working with him. And he didn't buy into like this auteurist bullshit where mm-hmm. it's just like it's my vision or the highway. Right. He felt that the characters came from the actors themselves. And so he wanted them to feel lived in and he wanted them to feel comfortable. And so he took input, you know, he, he didn't give notes to actors on their performances because he hired them assuming that they understood the role Mm. and whatever they brought to it would just be something that they brought to it. Mm. That's a pretty cool place way to work. But Rollins herself said that when Cassavetes directed, he would become like this obsessive perfectionist. Uh, I read an interview with her where she said, as an artist, I love him, but as a husband, I hate him. (laughs) Um, oh, poor Gina. And, Gina Rollins uh, is still with us. She is, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so sadly, uh, Cassavetes, he was a lifelong alcoholic and uh, that he had a lot of pretty serious health problems stemming from that. Uh, he died of cirrhosis of the liver in 1989 when he was only 59 years old. So he, he died earlier than he should have. Um, but yeah, like you said, his son, Nick Cassavetes, is a director. Uh, in addition to The Notebook, he made a movie called She's So Lovely with uh, Sean Penn and Robin Wright and John Travolta. Uh, that came out in 1997, and it was based off a script that John Cassavetes wrote but never got to shoot. Mm. Uh, it's not a good movie. Oh, but, really? but uh, you know, that exists. He, apparently, Cassavetes left something like 40 scripts, unpublished oh. scripts, like wow. on his death. He was just an obsessively prolific writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, a little bit about Jenna Rollins. So it is pronounced mm. Jenna. I looked that up. Oh, it is, really? It's spelled like Gina, oh, but she pronounces Jenna, it Jenna Rollins. Jenna Rollins. Yeah, it's weird to get into the habit of it because okay. it looks like it's Sorry, spelled G-E-N-A. Oh. Uh, but My she's queen. a native of Wisconsin, and thankfully she is still with us. She mm-hmm. just celebrated her 90th birthday Happy in birthday. June. Happy birthday, Jenna. Mm-hmm. Uh, easily, easily, easily one of the finest actresses of her generation. Yeah. I mean, no doubt. And I don't think she really gets the credit she deserves mm-hmm. as one of the great influential actresses. I mean, I know you get performers like, uh, like a- Amy Adams and uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal who both kind of cite her as like one of her, their primary influences. So if that gives you kind of an idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's been nominated for two Oscars. One of them is for this movie, and the other one is for Gloria, which Cassavetes also directed. Did you see Gloria? Oh, you haven't seen I really want to see Glo- Gloria. I haven't seen Gloria, no. I've been no. on my watch list for a long time. I know that was one of her, that was one of Cassavetes' bigger movies, and it was mm-hmm. remade with Sharon Stone in the 90s, and nobody mm-hmm. saw that version. That's interesting. And there's Gloria Bell, which was also remade. It's lots of Glorias. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, she did win. She never won uh, a competitive Oscar, but she did get an honorary award in 2015 for Mm -hmm. just generally being awesome. Mm -hmm. Uh, Did you ever see her in Polly? Yes, about the bird. I did. That's the first time I ever saw <laughs> yeah, her. Me too. Yeah, but uh, yeah, talking to Jay Moore as a parrot. Yeah, and she's very good in that movie. Yeah, yeah you know, she's the best part of that movie. Say what you will about that movie, she's very good in it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, she started on Broadway in the fifties, where uh, she was starring in successful productions of The Seven Year Itch on Broadway and a couple other famous plays before she transitioned to screen. I think she is probably still best known for her collaborations with her husband. Yeah. Because, and I'm sure you have this fun fact coming up, but yeah. like A Woman Under the Influence was supposed to be a play. Yeah. And she was like, I can't do this eight times a week. Right. Are you kidding me? Yeah. No, yeah. You watch this movie. It's like, oh my God. Yeah. That, this was the right choice for yeah. her own health and safety. <laughs> yeah. Like, good, good Lord. You have to go to such a dark place for this movie. Mm-hmm. But some of her other notable non Cassavetes roles includes uh, Woody Allen's Another Woman. She was the lead mm-hmm. in that. Uh, the Skeleton Key was a recent like horror movie with Kate Hudson. I didn't oh, realize she was in she that. Was in that huh? She's in that. Interesting. And then, of course, as the elder version of Rachel McAdams in mm-hmm. The Notebook, directed by her son Nick. What are your feelings about Nick. The Notebook? Oh, okay. <laughs> yes, yes. Let's see. This. <laughs> All right. Here, here's here's the thing. I can't totally hate The Notebook mm-hmm. because. For me, this was the movie that introduced me to maybe my favorite working actress, Rachel McAdams, okay. and okay. Ryan Gosling, who I also really, really love. I think they are both. What's your favorite Rachel McAdams project? Oh my god, I love all of her stuff. Like, really? uh, okay, you're gonna you're gonna laugh at me. Okay. 
uh, the movie that's just on Netflix just came out this year, Her and Will Ferrell, and it's called Eurovision oh. Song Contest, oh. The Story of Fire Saga. Yeah. I've watched that like three times. Wow. That I movie am gonna laugh at you. makes me so happy. Have you watched that yet? No. It's I have so not. good. I'm telling okay. you. It Despite, is Despite like Will Ferrell and the title and the marketing. Terrible title, terrible marketing, and I know nothing about the Eurovision Song Contest, <laughs> but oh my God, you just get so swept up in it. Damn, okay. A lot of it's because of her, uh, mm-hmm. and you do have to suspend your disbelief that she and Will Ferrell are the same age. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, but it, it's a really fun movie, you know, okay. and she's she's got comedy chops. She's mm-hmm. got serious chops. I mean, I like, love her in Game Night. I feel like that's a standout Rachel McAdams. Absolutely is. Yeah, Spotlight, she's really good. Oh, and yeah, I mean, Spotlight. like Red Eye, she's really good. She's in a lot oh, of great okay, stuff. Yeah. Underappreciated. Yeah. Um, so, but The Notebook overall, like, I, I think the Nicholas Sparks of it all just mm-hmm. kills me. Like, mm-hmm. uh, spoilers for the notebook, but there's a moment where, like, the power of love helps you cure Alzheimer's <laughs> for at least brief <laughs> periods of time. And I'm just like, all right, I'm I'm universal jerk-off <laughs> motion on that one. Uh, definitely the best Nicholas Sparks movie. It's got yeah, that. Yeah, gives Dear John a run for its money. You know, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, but Jenna Rollins has not appeared on screen since an episode of NCIS in 2010. <laughs> Uh, so hopefully wow, she's, years, huh? yeah, hope, hopefully she's doing all right. I yeah, think she is. Chilling yeah. in Just her villa somewhere. Chilling, enjoying life. Hopefully she's got yeah. great grandkids by this point and, yeah. uh, and mm-hmm. hopefully she's still around with us for a long time. Yeah. Hope you're doing out okay out there, General Rollins. And then one little extra thing about Peter Falk too, mm-hmm. because I love Peter Falk. Yeah. I think people of your age know him as the grandpa from the Princess Bride. Actually, or do you my know parents him as are old AF, so Ooh. they watched Columbo. You were a Columbo kid. So okay. I'm a Columbo stan. Also, I watched The Great Muppet Caper a lot, so I know him as the guy who tries to sell Kermit a watch. That's true. <laughs> That's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. That seminal role as guy who sells Kermit watch. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, Peter Falk was fantastic. Like, yeah, he, he uh, just kind of one of these, like, gruff yeah. character he's actors. Kind, he's he's got a like, mug. He's got, like, that father figure quality to him but also that sort of like gruffy smoke ex-smoker edginess right so i find myself like wanting to be him to be my dad but also being slightly attracted to him so it's very confusing (laughs) i mean he's like he's like a blue collar tough guy like right down the line Mm -hmm. and part of why he's so effective in like colombo and things like that is because He's so laid back that you never see him coming, which Mm -hmm. makes this performance in Woman Under the Influence all the more, like, disturbing because this is this guy, if you're used to seeing Peter Falk, it's as this very genial, comforting older man. He has almost like a Tom Hanks quality to him. He's got a, a, yeah. When you see him do something, you know, vile or evil, you're like, ooh, no, Peter Falk, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah. But as near as I can tell, like, he was not a controversial figure by any stretch of the imagination. He's an unproblematic fave. Unproblematic fave. Nominated for 10 Emmys for uh, the role of Columbo. He won Mm -hmm. four of those. He was also nominated for two back to back Best Supporting Actor Oscars right when his career started. I didn't know that. 61 and 62. He was nominated for Oscars. Uh, I also never noticed until watching this movie that he is missing an eye. Yeah. Yeah, yeah his right eye. That. It's kind of, I was going to say it's really pronounced in this movie, but I think I was thinking of Mikey and Nikki because mm. there are more close-ups there where you notice like, hey, that, that eye He's, looks he, a little strange. He goes a little cross-eyed sometimes, yeah. and it's because he, he lost his eye to cancer when he was five years old, Man, uh, and he's been wearing a prosthetic ever That's since. Wild. I thought he just like had a lazy eye. I didn't no, no, just, uh, just, just the way it looks, you know, wow. but- but he kept playing Columbo. Columbo lasted from 1968 to 2003. He was still mm-hmm. making Columbo movies. Because wow. if you've never seen Columbo, it's not exactly like an hour-long weekly procedural. Like every episode of Columbo is a movie. Mm-hmm. So it's like there are, I think, like 70 episodes yeah. between that 40-year span. Mm-hmm. But he kept playing it like yeah. well into his old age, you know, and he was always great. It's so watchable. It's a fun show. And yeah. it, I mean, I'm pretty sure it was the inspiration for Monk, which was also a show that we had on in our house. Oh, yeah, it was yeah. like the trio of Columbo, Perot, and Monk mm. were the ones that my parents really liked. I'm sure they also watched Murder, She Wrote, but I was not into that one. I wasn't into that one either. I yeah. wanted to be into that one, but uh, yeah, hard to say. Yeah. Sadly, we did lose Peter Falk in 2011. He had uh, a pretty severe Alzheimer's. He went downhill oh. pretty fast. And incidentally, uh, because of some struggles that happened between his wife and his kids from his first marriage during his last days, there is now what's known as the Peter Falk Law in New York State, where uh, kids are not uh, you're you're not if you're a doctor, you're not allowed to 
block information from a patient's children oh. if they're like in the terminal stages of their life. Because huh, that's what happened. That was what was happening. Oh. There was a struggle where like his wife wasn't letting the kids in the room and they needed to know what oh, happened. No. It, it got a little ugly at the end, unfortunately, with some family stuff. But, but now Peter Falk law is a thing that exists. It's a thing. Peter Falk is on the books as a law. Interesting. Uh, a little bit of trivia about this movie before we get started. So you did mention already this was originally envisioned as a play, and then they decided, yeah, no way, is that going to work? I'm not going to be able to do that. This movie was actually... Yeah, (laughs) it takes a bit to rewire your head on that, right? Yeah. Uh, The the movie was shot in 1972, but Cassavetes had trouble finding studio financing for the movie, so he decided to fund it himself, along with donations from his friends and family, and the biggest donor by far to the production was Peter Falk himself. He put forward 500,000 of his own money because he believed in this script so much. Uh, those two were collaborators on multiple projects uh, after this, so they, they were good friends. Uh, Cassavetes also found a champion in an up-and-coming auteur named Martin Scorsese, who mm-hmm. threatened to pull his movie Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore from the New York Film Festival unless Woman Under the Influence also got a screening. Oh, wow. They weren't going to show it, so good, good for him. Yeah. But the gamble paid off. Uh, the movie wound up making about $12 million internationally off a $750,000 yeah, budget. Yeah, like a... This is like a, do you think this is a well-known movie? Like if you walked up to like several yokels around the age that, that, that would be appropriate for them to have seen it when it comes out, would they would know of it at least? I don't think so. Yeah. No, I don't, I don't think this is like a, uh, uh household or... name kind of movie. Yeah. It's weird. Cause it gets referenced and stuff sometimes. Like there's, I mean, there's a reference to it in Gilmore Girls, which isn't saying much cause there's a reference to 20 million things in Gilmore Girls. I mean, they've got 200 paid scripts to shoot. Every <laughs> yeah. Week, yeah they got to fill the time with yeah. something. <laughs> but I mean, it's a pretty prominent reference. It's like Liza, it's Paris doing the like like thumb in the air on the street like hey you got a quarter and then uh it's also referenced in that movie don't think twice that mike berbiglia movie oh okay but maybe it's maybe it's meant to be niche but like gillian 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 and jenna is (laughs) good lord i'm so sorry to the g's Um, (laughs) they they have to make it so complicated we're gonna spell it the exact same way that everyone understands how to say it and then you have to say it the opposite way both of them don't listen to this but um there's there's a scene in that movie where she's like here's my impression of jenna rollins and a woman under the influence and she does like hey you got a quota so i guess it's the bull it's that scene in both and maybe it's one of those like how people know that scene from Midnight Cowboy more than they actually more than more than people who have seen the entire movie. Right. So I was under the impression that like do people maybe they know it and they've heard of it maybe in passing. I don't know. I I feel like maybe if you've taken some film classes in college, you mm-hmm. might have come across You're this. An arty farty folk. But this this wouldn't be a movie that plays on like TBS in the afternoon or right. something yeah, like yeah, this. Yeah. And it's it's not really available anywhere. Mm-hmm. It's it's on HBO Max. Mm-hmm. I watched it on my like very very old DVD that you have mm-hmm. to flip over in the middle. I have the John Cassavetes box set. Look at you! Look at you! Her finger is in the air at the moment right now. She's. I just love. There's like a Criterion Closet video where Barry Jenkins is like taking all of the movies. And oh yeah. He grabs John Cassavetes and he's like foundation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not wrong. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about this movie. Do you have a, uh, a pithy one sentence uh, yeah. summary of this movie as much as we can be? Yeah, pithy. I'll try. Okay. So <clears throat> a woman under the influence is everything that I wanted marriage story to be a horror story about the joys and the agony of marriage. Wow. Okay. That is an intense interpretation. I am into that. Okay. So. Basically, this is a this is a pretty simple story. We have a married couple. They're just kind of your average, like this is East Coast somewhere, right? Uh, I mean, actually, I'm, this is Los Angeles. This is Los Angeles, yeah. really? Okay, mm-hmm. they all have such very heavy, like I know. New York accents. I wouldn't have known it if I hadn't looked it up because I was like, this has got to be New York or something, right? But yeah, Wikipedia says Los Angeles. So, Crazy. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, that's Nick and Mabel Longetti. Uh, mm-hmm. They're kind of a blue collar family. Uh, Nick works for the city, and uh, Mabel's a housekeeper. Mm-hmm. Uh, or not a housekeeper, a housewife. Mm-hmm. Um, she has been exhibiting some very unusual behaviors. Some odd behavior. Uh, I still, I think I agree with Nick that she's not crazy. Well, you know, I, and I don't want to be reductive with that term, but mm-hmm. she's, Mabel's troubled. It's very clear from the get-go. Yeah. And we, 
the first time we're introduced to Mabel, she's running out. Of, she's already like in this state of extreme anxiety. Mm-hmm. Her mother is taking the kids out for the day mm-hmm. and she's just kind of, she, she's got this strange, almost belligerent relationship with her mother where she's always yelling at her and being very cruel to her. Yeah. I mean, I get the sense that she did not have a very easy childhood. I'm wondering about that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking so. Uh, I also think that some of the symptoms that she's kind of exhibiting make her more childish. Yeah. Like she's kind of reverting to this childish state. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess, through, I mean, maybe I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but I guess throughout the whole movie, I just really wanted to protect her. Like, I feel like she just needs a better support system. Yeah. I think that the people in her life treat her like garbage. Like, yeah. Like her husband and, and her mother-in-law um, and just like don't really know how to, act appropriately around her. Yeah. Um, her husband especially. I feel like Nick is kind of at fault here for a lot of <laughs> some of I mean, the problems in their relationship. Nick just straight up doesn't know how to handle what's been given to him. He's a guy who, you know, you, you the, the first time you meet him, uh, the opening shot of the movie is he's in a ditch. He's mm-hmm. up to his ank- uh, his waist in water, mm-hmm. and he's controlling this crew of guys, and yeah. they're working hard. A real, like, burly, like, rah, 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 Oh, yeah. Man. Yeah, yeah. Think, like, you know, you think the gruffest possible man in the gruffest possible era of uh, the American history, <laughs> and you've got, <laughs> you've got him. And, yeah. you know, they all got off their shift, and they're smoking, and they're drinking, and then he's yelling at the boss because they want him to come in and pull an all-nighter, and mm-hmm. he doesn't want to, you know... He's this tough guy and he knows how to handle these situations. Mm-hmm. But whatever's going on with Mabel scares him so bad and he doesn't know. Yeah, he doesn't know how, how to, to handle, handle it. it. He doesn't, I mean, I guess for the time, he acts in a way where he thinks he's doing the right thing. And I, I think he clearly loves her a lot. Like, oh, it very much. It seems like they both need each other and yeah. they both like are trying to make it work. Um, but yeah, I feel like his, his decisions concerning Mabel are largely misguided for the most part. (laughs) A lot of things that he tries to do makes things worse. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, like, I don't know. I I think of all the movies we've watched in this show so far, this is the one that is the the most performance driven. Mm -hmm. Like every other movie we've had, like, you know, uh, when Shiana and Lou is experimenting Mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, in cold blood is all about like portraying the real life thing. This is about letting actors be actors and letting them drive the story and drive the plot. Mm -hmm. So you can definitely see that this was written as a play. Like this could easily be mounted. Most of the time in this one location. Yeah, yeah. Most of it is in the house. Which, uh, by the way, are we going to talk about this house layout? Please. Yeah. What do you have to say? So, so they have a so (laughs) there's a door. There's like a double sided door Uh that you open up, and then there's a bed, and then the kitchen. Like not the kitchen, but like the dining room. Yeah. And the master bedroom are the same room? No, see that's a the thing. They're uh they're not sleeping in a master bedroom. They are sleeping in the living room uh-huh. because they uh you notice what they're sleeping on is a pull-out couch. Right. Yeah. So I think they just let the kids have the master ah, bedroom. I think it's okay. a I think it's like a one bedroom house. Interesting. Yeah, and then all three kids share the room upstairs and they just sleep down in the living room. Yeah. Yeah, so they just kind of sleep okay. right there and then they have to yeah, you do have I to walk why, through there. I wonder why. <laughs> It seems like a bigger house than, mm-hmm. like, it seems like it would have another room. Yeah. I guess I'm just... And all the kids seem to share a room. Yes. I guess it's just such a prominent, like, because they spend so much time, like, going up the stairs, going down the stairs, like, being in the bed and, and being in the kitchen that you get kind of used to the layout. And it just seems, it's just an odd layout for it is. House, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. And the bathroom bit. is, like... First of all, the bathroom has that big sign on it that says private and it's next to the dining room. Like it opens out into the onto the dining room table. Yeah. Yeah. Architecture's digest. Yeah, yeah. No, it makes for it makes for an interesting kind of layout to mm-hmm. it. And you almost wonder if like maybe Mabel insisted they sleep in the living room or yeah, something. Like it's very maybe she's peculiar. Just, it's an odd choice. Mm-hmm. Um but uh when we first see Mabel, she's getting ready for like kind of a, the kids have been sent away and she and Nick are going to have like a private romantic night. Like mm-hmm. they needed a night to themselves, mm-hmm. but Nick's been called into work all night yeah. and Mabel has a little bit of, it's, I mean, you could almost call it a fugue state. Like she doesn't yeah. seem to be totally. She doesn't really know what to do with herself. And not I think, really. I mean, I'm not, not to be like an armchair or whatever, but like, yeah. I think it's because Mabel is very codependent on yeah. Nick and when she was expecting him to come home and expecting to have this like wonderful night with him, she like didn't really know what to do with herself when she couldn't get a hold of him when that didn't happen. So yeah. she just sort of she took control and she went out on her own to get what she wanted. 
Yeah. What she was expecting. Oh, right. Yeah. And so basically what that means is that Mabel has some drinks. She mm-hmm. goes to the nearest bar. She kind of picks up the first guy she sees mm-hmm. and takes him home. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, it's it's not a very sympathetic way to first meet this character and to first introduce mm-hmm. this character to us, like that, that she can go out and do this. But we're also seeing that she is in a state of kind of extreme agitation. Yeah. And you'll notice that a lot of her her tics and a lot of her kind of manifestation of her mental illness have to do with being very touchy. She invades people's space. She puts her face on their face. She's a contortionist, like in her face and in her movements. And she always wants to dance. Yeah. She just seems very like playful. Like you already said, like childlike. Well, compare it to like the, the first, the the opening scene where the mother is taking the kids away Mm -hmm. and her daughter is literally like strangling the mother Uh and putting her hands all over her face (laughs) and just completely invalidating any kind of personal bubble that Mm -hmm. her uh, grandmother might have. And compare that to how Mabel's acting and you can see kind of this childish nature that's coming across. She has Mm -hmm. this extreme anxiety and this extreme need to feel touched and to feel Mm -hmm. safe and and to feel like some warmth. Mm -hmm. To be held. Now, I'm curious about like what you think about this. Like, I think there is a subtextual reading that you can do here of like, oh, the strains of of uh, blue collar life on on marriages and on mental health and everything. And I, but I almost don't think Cassavetes is interested in that. Yeah. I, th- I think, I think he wants this story to be what it is. I think he wants it to be this slice of life kind of moment. Uh, Without all the, the the weight of like the culture or anything on it. I guess I have two thoughts. Mm. Um, my first thought is that, well, A, it feels like Jenna Rollins had a huge impact on the way that this story was written or that it all played out. Mm-hmm. Like it, I don't see this movie being the same without her, no. obviously. And, and I think that something that she may have been getting at was that being a woman is really fucking hard. And especially being a wife and a mother. And there are all these like mundane and like regular sort of insane stresses and pressure that comes with that. Um, And like that you're expected to be sort of the supporter and the provider and like all these things to your husband. And that that is hard. And that you have that she has her own wants Mm. and desires and needs and it weighs on her. And, yeah. and and not only that, but like she also has this sort of mental illness that's obviously not being treated in, uh, I, I don't know, what we would consider to be a healthy way. No. Um, so I think that those two things combined are things that I was thinking about throughout the whole thing. And then um, I can't remember what the second point I was going to make was, but no. I'll come back to that. I'm sure it was really good, though. Oh, yeah. Like, Imagine I, that it was super eloquent and the, like lovely. Oh, wait. Hang on a second. <laughs> Yeah, I said what I said. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, oh, oh. My microphone is smoking yeah. from the heat of that take. Sorry, everyone. That's okay. <laughs> I don't know. I think my my argument against that idea is just that, like, I feel like we would. Oh, I remember. Oh, yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. B. Okay. The second thing is that I didn't find this movie to be that, un, like, that out of the realm of possibility. I guess what I'm trying to say is that it gave me flashbacks to like my own home life and the relationship that my parents had. Okay. Um, and like how my mom probably had mental issues that she, you know, she was very anti-therapy or anti-mental health as a real thing at all. Yeah. So like seeing some of these things, I was just thinking like, yeah, this is like, this is reminding me of like really bad days in the Nicholson household and how things just get crazy and traumatic and and people don't really know how to act. So they act the best that they can in their best interests while they still love each other. They they often, I don't know, people mistreat each other. I think families mistreat each other yeah. when they don't know what to do. And then we just we just go on with our days. Like we try and survive it. So yeah, I guess some of this movie I'm like, this is just like domestic life and growing up. Wow. Yeah. I was gonna ask if you came from like was there a lot of yelling in your household growing Occasionally, up? Occasionally, yeah. Okay. Like there were flashbacks that I got in this movie. This was my second time watching it. And there when when um Nick is like yelling on the phone or like yelling at his kids or yelling at 
at Mabel, it sort of gave me flashbacks to like moments when my dad would yell. Yeah. And he is like 80% of the time a very soft spoken dude, but he can definitely like pull out the yelling like when the situation gets sure. tense. Yeah. Um, and it's not like, I don't know, he never like hit any of us aside from like spanking or whatever, but sure. like, yeah, he would have these outbursts and eventually like they're, they just kind of got like, oh, dad's like yelling right now and it's scary, but he'll calm down soon, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, every, every mm-hmm. you know, we, we had some of that growing up. I mean, I think everybody's got some of that growing up. We weren't mm-hmm. like an exceptionally like explosive emotional family like that. Mm-hmm. I think we, we tended to implode more than anything yeah. else. <laughs> yeah. But, mm-hmm. but everyone's <laughs> dealing with the shit in their own way, you know? But I, I agree, like, the, there's a very, very interesting clash in tones in this movie because for the most part it is kind of like documentary realism and then Mabel's illness feels almost ridiculously heightened sometimes Mm -hmm. like it feels almost over the top how out of control she can be and how odd she is in every moment of her life and I think the effect that that produces for me is in a sense it reinforces the reality of the world because this feels like this seismic, like this this atomic bomb dropped in the middle of their very, very screamingly normal life, mm. you know, and and it kind of emphasizes Nick's struggle of trying to understand it to the exact yeah. way and, and flailing and failing to, to kinda, grasp what she's doing. It kind of begs the question what their normalcy looks like. Like yeah. if we're seeing into this very particular window where things are heightened, which obviously like her sort of breakdown in the middle of the movie and then her going away for six months was clearly like an event in their marriage. Yeah. But I would be curious to see like what what a few years is like in their marriage or like what it was like when she first started having kids or like what the next day after the final scene in this film is like. Right. Because I get that, at least from my own home, where we would have sort of ebbs and flows of like, ooh, mom is like really angry and like impatient today. Like I think she's having one of her bad spells and then it would sort of normalize, but, you know, come back every other month or so. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I was curious, too, about, like, what I think there's a different movie here where we see what happened at the hospital. Mm. And I feel like that's also kind of where more of the subtext would have come in that you were kind of talking about, about the struggles of being a woman in this Mm -hmm. in this situation, Mm -hmm. because if you we're jumping all around and apologies, I'm not we're not going to be like tracing the plot in one (laughs) specific way. But when she comes back from the hospital in the last act of the movie, Mm -hmm. she is extremely delicate and she's very very afraid to show any kind of emotion because any emotion is coming across as hysterical and you can tell this is something that was kind of beat into her mm-hmm. in this six months day at the hospital yeah. but the fact that we don't see that we're kind of just meant to infer her experiences here I think that we're not really meant to look at this necessarily as like this sociological thing and more just a very personal, quiet family drama, mm-hmm. which is my, t- I don't know, but I, I can, you can definitely hear other takes on it and you can definitely mm-hmm. hear like, like the stuff is here. Like mm-hmm. it's, I, I think Cassavetes is so, so good at finding these little details, just finding just these very small little visual moments. And I think that is what he's more interested in. I think he's more interested in the minutia of daily life yeah. and the impact something like this would have. Yeah. You know, I think about like uh, her slipper falling off in the lawn and so she hops mm-hmm. on one foot to go back yeah. to it. Yeah. I think of uh, Nick and all his buddies getting shirtless in the back of the truck mm-hmm. uh, while racing down a hill, a bunch of like pudgy middle-aged men <laughs> racing down this hill yeah. and then taking all their clothes off in the back of a van and changing. And then mm-hmm. Peter Falk, a little tiny stubby Peter Falk <laughs> climbing across their laps in the front seat of the car. Mm-hmm. You know, these little observational moments that really kind of make the movie uh, stand out. Yeah. I think my favorite small moments from this film that I think about a lot are the spaghetti scene, like yeah. the good parts of the spaghetti scene before things kind of go to hell. Yeah. Um, Cause like, like, hi, I'm Mabel. Would you like some spaghetti? Yeah. I like that a lot. And I love, I love anytime that Mabel dances, like also before things go to hell when she's babysitting those kids and she's like, let's dance. And they dance to that song from Swan Lake. Yeah. And the camera just kind of follows her while she's like, she's really like in her element in that moment. Yeah. Um, or I don't know, just like 
I mean, we've talked about about Jenna Rowland's sort of performance and her face and her body. One moment that I love and that I think is used like when people use images from this film or mm. after she sleeps with that guy in the morning when she's laying in the bed and her hand is kind of opening and closing in just such this this really like visually striking way. And it's just this mundane like like just human movement, but yeah. it's mesmerizing. I think uh, we haven't even really talked about Roland's performance in this, but holy shit, this thing is scintillating mm-hmm. and it's so fascinating. One of the, I think one of the more unnerving and brilliant choices that she makes is that her her gestures are kind of cartoonish, mm-hmm. but there's a there's an anger behind them. Like yeah. she's not like she she blows raspberries a lot. Yeah, like that's kind of like. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Like, but she does it with that. Like normally when somebody does that, mm-hmm. it's like a playful little like brush off. But yeah. when she's doing it, it's like, it, it's a, it's a, it's a punctuation mark. Like yeah. it's a serious. There's like angst behind it. Yeah. There's no, there's no playfulness behind her eyes when she does these kind of childish it things. It does feel very or, East Coasty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's a really unnerving choice. And, mm-hmm. and again, she's, she's kind of reverted to this petulant preteen, you know, in the body of a 40 year old woman. And, and and so she's, she's got this extreme antipathy towards her mother that like Mm -hmm. keeps manifesting all these little screaming, cruel gestures. And she's making faces behind her back. It seems for the most part, like she'd rather hang out with kids. She does. She, she's much happier hanging out with the kids. And then there's that terrifying scene where Mr. Jensen comes to drop off his kids and he clocks immediately that something is not right. One of the most quietly like devastating lines in this movie is where they're dancing Swan Lake in the back. And she's like, come and die for Mr. Jensen. Show him how you die, kids. Mm-hmm. Show him how you die. <laughs> and you can imagine like what he's feeling yeah, right here. It's tough. That scene is hard to watch because like I, A, I like, I love her and I'm like, she's just, she just wants to play costumes with these kids. Like she is a kid. But also like I can see being a parent and being like, mm, do I really want to like leave this house right now? Yeah. I don't really know what's going to happen happen to my kid so it's hard seeing both of those and just seeing them not work out and clash in like the most horrible ways you can imagine and the the two younger kids for most of the movie don't really know what's going on but you get the sense that tony the oldest boy is kind of starting to piece it together there's that scene where like they're talking and he says he's like mom you're really smart you're really pretty you're really nervous too like oh yeah he's starting he's starting to understand it's pretty heartbreaking that like yeah. the way his mom acts is not normal. And it's also worth noting that we don't see Mabel like pre-illness. We don't see her before whatever this is happening. Mm-hmm. When the movie starts, uh, people are talking to Nick uh, in almost like hushed tones mm-hmm. because like everyone knows what's going on with her. Everyone knows that she's in this situation and she's not getting better mm-hmm. and that Nick might still be a little bit in denial about it. Yeah. So they're trying to they're treating him with kid gloves and they're not really trying yeah. to draw a lot of attention it's to it. And then it's pronounced too when yeah. he comes back or after like that really horrible night with the doctor and he's driving around and he's like, I don't want to discuss my affairs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's so quick to like burst into anger or throw a punch, yeah. you know. I I was thinking about the scene where uh, he comes home, there's all the chaos with Mr. Jensen. And he he's immediately turning on Jensen, yeah. which makes me think like, all right, so this this rando that she picked up in the bar at the beginning, mm-hmm. maybe isn't an isolated incident, yeah. or I don't I don't yeah. think he, I don't think he knows for sure, but I think he suspects mm-hmm. that this has happened before, mm-hmm. and that's why he jumps straight to attacking Jensen, like for being a man in his house, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah. also I we establish. We also establish that the first time he hits her in this movie is the first time that he has hit her. Mm-hmm. Um, and based on his reaction here, you almost you you kind of feel like he would have hit her if he knew for sure she was having an affair before yeah. this. Yeah. And that's such a scary moment too. It's one of those things. It's like it's it, it it's it, it it gives an extra complexity to Nick because. Mm-hmm. You don't think of him as this character who would do something like this. Like to this point, he's been patient in his way. He's gruff and he can get yeah. angry. But up until that point, it was like, oh, this dude is a dude who's doing the best he can. Yeah, he's been sort of raised in this certain society with these certain rules for men. But then it's like, oh, 
Oh no. But he's a fundamentally good guy, you know, and mm-hmm. and seeing him break like that was really jarring and upsetting. It's yeah. it's extra bad when it happens again later in the movie yeah. in front of the kids like yeah. it's It's telling too that he's like in that later scene when he's trying to approach Mabel, the kids are like pushing him back. And they're like, no, no. And they're trying to keep him away from Mabel. I thought that was a really heartbreaking moment. But we also never get the sense that he's the type of cruel man who would hit her for no reason. And you get the sense that he thinks he's like snapping her back to reality or something so, like like kind of what you the same thought process where he was like a lobotomy is probably the right thing for my wife sure is the same thought of like i'm gonna hit her to get her out of this state because that's what doctors did in old movies right mm-hmm. if a woman's being hysterical they get slapped around a yeah. little bit and then she's yeah. fine like it's not a good thing that is happening but mm-hmm. yeah. you could see where he would internalize that you but could, you don't get the yeah. sense that he's abusive in the traditional sense that, guess, that he would do this to her i don't know I, it's hard to say that like he's not abusive when he did hit her twice yeah um, yeah but I, I i guess i would say that he does clearly love her yes but it's not a healthy love and, and he's you know he he's he's barely keeping it together we get that impression you know when we when when that scene happens it's worth noting he's fresh off a triple you know mm-hmm. he worked all day and then mm-hmm. all night and then he'd barely gotten any sleep before the kids woke him up and then they mm-hmm. called him back into work. Yeah, he is at a, like a break. He's point. exhausted. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and he, but, you know, so none of this justifies striking his wife in any way at all. It's, it's just kind of, you know, you can see where it's coming from from a character perspective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you've mentioned the spaghetti scene. I think the spaghetti scene is wonderful because there is like a lot, a lot of warmth mm-hmm. And courtesy and like friendship, like she knows some of the guys from the crew and she likes these guys from the crew. Yeah. And she's, you can see her kind of wanting to be a good host and wanting to like present themselves as like the white picket fence kind of domestic, the idealized version of what a marriage yeah. in their minds should be. And then there's the, the use of opera throughout the movie. Mm. Like you think about in the spaghetti scene, like what kind of, tips things what kind of sends things going in the other direction is when one of the workers starts singing he's got this beautiful operatic baritone and he's mm-hmm. singing at the table and we've heard opera throughout the movie like mm-hmm. uh, uh non-diegetically uh, am i using that right? i always get those yeah. confused like, not, not, in in movie, not in the movie not in the movie it's on the yeah. soundtrack yeah okay mm-hmm. i always get those confused but um we we hear a lot of opera and i think you know, opera is big and heightened and over the top. And Dramatic. I feel like I feel like what we're hearing when we're hearing the opera is meant to reflect her mental state, mm-hmm. which is why I think it's very interesting that the song the movie ends on mm-hmm. is kind of this weird jazzy pop number with kazoos. Yeah, it is. It's, like, a, it's a big... Uh... It's, it's a big tone shift. It's, it's a almost like a, a yeah. It's almost like a Doctor Demento thing. But but that music starts coming up when this insane night has subsided and they've kind of settled into a domestic routine to a degree. Like, yeah. What did you make of the ending? So yeah, I got, yeah, that's, that's worth talking about. So, you know, uh, we, we have this big scene with Mabel and the doctor where they finally decide it's time for her to be committed, that she's Mm going to need some help. Mm -hmm. Uh, she gets taken away for six months. We get this really heartbreaking scene where Nick is just trying to, keep things together on this first yeah, day where he's like dragging the kids around the beach. Oh, the, like, we're going to have fun at the beach. Nothing's more fun than forced fun. You know, <laughs> yeah. like these kids are, nobody's having fun at the beach right now, but he's like, God damn it. We're going to have fun at the beach. Cause this yeah. is what normal people do, you know? Uh, and we don't get to see the full six months that she's gone, but, but we get this day to see kind of what the tenor of it is and what the weight of it is. And that it's going to take some work for Nick to get into the groove of things. Uh, when she, the day she finally comes back, we, again, we get this really good visualization of how Nick is, he has the best intentions, but he doesn't really know what he's doing. He packs the house yeah. with everybody they know. Dumb. I they, was like, just give her some space. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, cause he's thinking like in his head, it's like, oh my God, the, the woman I love is coming home. This is a time for celebration. I want everybody I care about to be here to see her because this is what she, she loves people. She loves these people. Yeah. And then it isn't until 
his mother kind of explains it to him that this is going to be like overwhelming for mm-hmm. her. And then they have to awkwardly ask all these people who they dragged over to the house to please leave, yeah. except for like a small handful of people. And they gradually get weeded well, out we throughout were, the night. Uh, I was watching this with my friend and we were talking about like party anxiety. Yeah. And how like that moment of like when you are done with the party and you're like, okay, I just need everyone to go home. Like yeah. I need to be either like with my partner or by myself. Like that moment where you can just sort of exhale. Um, I feel like that's what Mabel needed. And obviously that's what she was asking for. And people still were like, no. So that was really frustrating because I was just like, go home. Yeah, yeah. They they still just didn't really know how to treat her. I think maybe Nick had the feeling that, oh, she spent six months at this place. She's better. She's mm-hmm. cured. Like everything. Yeah. Like I think he got ahead of himself and he wasn't really prepared for mm-hmm. the work that would still need to be done. So they clear the house out. Uh, Mabel holds it together for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then we get the first sign that things have kind of gone wrong when she goes into the other room and she starts loudly commenting on her friend's ass. Yeah. Just saying, look how big your ass has got. <laughs> like <Yeah>. being, <laughs> you know, and her friend is very good nature. She's like, it's okay. I do have a big ass. We all have big asses, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like they're trying to, they're really trying to make the most of it. And then like, you know, Nick is desperately trying to keep the conversation light to the yeah. point where he's starting to get scary and yelling at people. Conversation, conversation, no more singing. Yeah. Like he's getting super. Yeah. The, the like the need that Nick has to control social situations seems like a red flag to me. He well, yeah, yeah. And it's this kind of, you know, he at his age, he probably would have been brought up in the 40s or 50s mm. right like and yeah. and kind of used to that idea of like the man is the mm-hmm. lord of the household right. and he has Social to norms and right yeah he's very much this archetypal like toxic american male like without and it's sh- it's like shitty because if people just like went with the flow and like chilled with mabel i feel like they would all have a good time yeah she just wants to sing and dance and like be silly and people like get so mostly nick yeah. So violently upset at that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but there's also like the way that she invades people's space mm. would genuinely like for me, that would mm-hmm. make me horribly uncomfortable. Like mm-hmm. if I was singing and she was trying to stick her face in my <laughs> mouth to watch my uvula shaking. Yeah. Like she yeah. was doing with the guy at the dinner table. Like, <laughs> yeah, she really doesn't have much regard for boundaries. Yeah. She just, she gets so close to people and she's mm-hmm. so intense and so unrelenting that it's, mm-hmm. It puts them off. You can see why people don't just want to kind of feed into her delusions and just try and have fun with it. You know, yeah. there there was a bit of that at the spaghetti scene, but mm-hmm. by the time she's back and like meeting with dinner and everything, mm-hmm. that needs to stop. Yeah. Um, and then things on this final night, once everybody finally leaves, just take mm-hmm. this horrible, horrible turn. Mm-hmm. She she runs to the bathroom, tries to get a razor. Uh, yeah, that was hard. Nick and all three kids are trying to wrestle this razor out of her hand. There's blood coming down her fingers. Yeah. The kids are screaming and upset. Nick keeps dragging the kids I know, upstairs. Dragging the kids up the stairs. Uh, immediately, and they're back and they down. Run down. He Ooh. he hits her again, knocks her off an ottoman. Uh, yeah. Like it gets so bad. Yeah. And then it just kind of calms down. Yeah. Like, it, it works out like she gets to a point where she finds a little bit of lucidity and she just says like, I'm fine. I'm fine. You guys go to bed, go to bed. And the movie ends with Nick and Mabel just kind of going about their domestic Well, there's a lovely duties. sort of bridge scene of her laying down with each of the kids. Yes. And having that sort of tender moment, which I think is, is a needed <laughs> scene in that moment to get us from, from the intensity of the fight to the end credits. We, we do like, it, it's hard to describe exactly how intense these scenes are. They are wrenching. They're emotionally devastating. It's very, very powerful and very hard to watch. So having those little moments with each kid, like gently kissing her three times on the mm-hmm. nose, like yeah. very sweet showing that like at the end of the day, she is still a loving mother. Mm-hmm. We, we get the sense that there's some hope for her. Yeah. We get the sense that, I think the, so. The fact that I mean, maybe I I I'm hopeful. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But but she and Nick kind of just go around tidying up the room. They're moving the table out so they could fold out their sofa right. bed. Which I feel like 
if they're not going to address it and they're not going to talk about it and they're not going to go to couples therapy, which I highly doubt they would based on everything we've seen. No. If this is their way of coping and coming down and coming together, then I guess I guess if it works for them, more power to them. Yeah, 100%. Mm-hmm. And this is the only moment I think that we've seen of them just as like a married couple, just as like a bog standard, every other house in the neighborhood married couple. Yeah. You see them like there's no music because we're here or there's no uh, uh, dialogue because mm-hmm. we're hearing this kind of kazoo music, this really strange kind of off-putting mm-hmm. kazoo music. Yeah. But you could see they're talking and they're laughing and they're smiling. Right. Peter Fox said that uh, Cassavetes was the kind of director who he, he expected you to be in, like in your character while you were on the set. Mm-hmm. And he loved to shoot people when they didn't think they were on camera oh. because he wanted these little real moments. Stuff. I kind of suspect that's what this oh, was. Really? I suspect yeah. this was Peter and Jenna mm-hmm. talking and, oh. and doing the scene and getting along. Yeah. But what that gives us is like the sense of normalcy is restored. And maybe the wacky music is because like, you know, what is normal, you know, normal mm-hmm. is wacky, normal is crazy. Like, and mm-hmm. you also, maybe you could read that she is ultimately happier in her madness. Cause yeah, you have, she's found some sort of normalcy in it all. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, but it, it, it ends very quietly. Mm-hmm. It just kind of, it, it, there's no other word for it. Things mm-hmm. just kind of subside. There is yeah. no one big dramatic moment where, where it all just like comes to an end. It just subsides. Mm-hmm. Which is, I mean, in my experience, how family fights end. I yeah. mean, it's no real like punctuation of like, what did we learn? It's just kind of like, we're out of steam now and we have to do like normal home things. Like yeah. make up the bed. We'll all go to bed. If we're still angry in the morning, we'll deal with it. Right, but right. likely we're not going yeah, to Yeah, he even says that. He's like, when he's putting the kids to bed, he's like, today was a tough day, but like, we'll try again tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, we got through it. You know, we got through this day. We'll see yeah. what happens tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the ultimate message is just, you know, they that's that's what they're going to do. She might get worse. Mm-hmm. She might get better. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, part of me wants to be hopeful, but the other part of me knows what mental health standards were like in the early 70s, especially when regarding women. Yeah. So. It's possible she is not getting the treatment that she needs. Mm-hmm. She doesn't seem like she's been medicated in any did way. It, did, was it? Did they say that she got a lobotomy when she was in? No, gone? Oh, okay. no, she wouldn't be acting like that if she got a lobotomy. Maybe okay. some electroshock or oh, something. Okay. That would have been commonplace back gotcha. then, I think. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, but yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. that's that's um, a woman under the influence. We we actually and again the title is misleading. We see that she might have a little bit of a drinking problem early in the yeah. movie, but it's not followed up on it's not really that's uh, not really like the main influence and we never get that this is the cause of anything if anything this is what she's doing she's drinking a little bit to cope with Mm -hmm. the influences seems to be more nebulous like just being a woman in this situation or being a middle-aged woman a wife and a a mother is the influence yeah yeah Um, yeah one thing i just wanted to mention real quick i know we didn't we sort of touched on how form and style isn't like a huge part of this. Like it's very much about the actors. But um, so I was watching a friend's like old home movies the other day. Yeah. And he was like, this is like John Cassavetes because we had just watched this movie together. And I was yeah. like, it is. It, there's like some sort of home movie-ish quality to his movies where it just feels like he sort of like put a camera down and is following these very real subjects as they go about and like we caught them in the middle of something yeah um that i really appreciate about his work he yeah i noticed that there's a scene early in the movie when uh nick and his crew are coming home for the spaghetti dinner mm-hmm. and the screen is almost completely white mm-hmm. and, until like the very end of the shot when like you see a shadow of a truck pass through mm-hmm. and i'm like i don't think this is a stylistic choice necessarily mm-hmm. i think it was just a very sunny morning yeah. and cassavetes wanted to capture that and mm-hmm. whether the shot was clear or not you know this this is the kind of day you'd have to look through your fingers you know to yeah. to see where you're going yeah. and so it didn't feel like any kind of grand uh artistic gesture or, or, or something like that it just felt like this is the day you know mm-hmm. Th- this is what it looks like today yeah it almost feels a little bit like a documentary in that way like yeah. he captured a very specific time there's a very frank there's a frankness to it that yeah. really works uh, I'm, I'm, a, I've seen this movie once before mm-hmm. and I, I am amazed at how well this holds up. This same, really, same. really holds up. I was really worried. I saw it back when I was kind of impressionable and like, I, I saw it and immediately it was like, this is my new favorite movie. I oh love yeah. This. Yeah. And then I never 
went back to it until just now, and I was really worried, like, maybe, like, 20-year-old Michaela got a little bit too excited. But mm -hmm. no, like, yeah. I think it really holds up. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's fantastic. I think uh, uh, Jenna Rollins and Peter Falk are incredible in this movie. Like, if you only know Peter Falk from Columbo, you're going to see a, a whole new yeah. side of Especially him. Especially if you only know him from The Princess Bride. Exactly. <laughs> and if you only know Jenna Rollins from The Notebook, guess what? She's one of the greatest actresses <laughs> of all time. Yeah. And this you is... you should watch more movies. You should watch more movies. <laughs> Uh, this is an amazing showcase for her. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. I, I, I can't think of anybody else who would be able to pull this off so well. And mm -hmm. it's unrelenting. Like, she doesn't she doesn't get a moment where she gets to just kind of relax and be herself. No. You know, she has to be living. I hope that she took, like, a very long vacation. I hope so. shooting this movie. I wonder what she's seeing, like, or what, what, what she does to get into this role. Because mm. she's not drawing on any kind of, like, stereotype of madness that you've seen in a movie or of, of mental illness in any way. I mean, way. I hope this isn't the case, but I mean, she might be pulling from her own experiences in her own marriage, but just exaggerated I'm, like, tenfold. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I get, I agree. I hope that's not the case, but, <laughs> but you know, Cassavetes was an intense guy. Like I, I wouldn't yeah. be surprised, but I also don't think she would stay married to him forever yeah. if he was an unrepentant monster, right. but you know, yeah. either way, uh, that's Woman Under the Influence. Incredible movie. Uh, where do you want to rank that one so far? I, I need to make a list of where we're at. I think right now we're both at Cleo at five to Cleo mm -hmm. from five to seven is our number one, uh, followed by Metropolis for me, and then I don't know. I'll make a list, but um, it's all on Letterbox. Check out our Letterbox, Letterbox page. Um, okay, so I don't know if this is controversial, but I'm going to put a Woman Under the Influence as my number one. Okay. Mostly because I do love Cleo from five to seven. I want that on the record. Mm. I love Agnes Varda with my whole heart. But there are other Agnes Varda movies that I love more okay. than Cleo from five to seven. And I think a Woman Under the Influence sort of hits like that like American independent cinema dialogue driven quiet relationship drama niche that I just like, just like give me more. Um, mm -hmm. So I think this movie is, is like, is, is an all time Mick fave. So I'm okay. going to put it at number one. That's a good pick. I, I think I'm going to put it just at number two, like mm -hmm. just right underneath Cleo nice. because Cleo really uh, uh, kind of blew me away. And uh, I feel like there's just, you know, a lot to dig into in that movie. And there's a lot to dig into here as well, but mm -hmm. this one, is very very intense it's not one i would come back to yeah. all that often uh just because it is it's think, a, it's emotionally yeah. wrenching I know. Like that's, you, that's probably why i haven't seen it since the first time until now it was like i needed to like mentally and emotionally prepare yeah. for the journey i i was a little like nervous about getting back into it because i mean it's a long movie too yeah. it's a two and a half hour long movie yeah. and you're you're living with this family and it's it, but it's so beautifully done it is so so beautifully done i would definitely recommend checking it out yeah well, we do have one little announcement about the future of the show going forward. Um, so this episode, sadly, is going to be the last one with Michaela as our regular co-host. Uh, but, you know, uh, Michaela's found an amazing new opportunity down in Seattle and yeah. uh, super, here, super. Uh, Northwest Film Forum and Seattle International Film Festival, if those things are ever, you know, I mean, they are things, but like, yeah, I'll be, I'll be there and I'll still be following the podcast. And I guess I just wanted to say that like, this has been, I mean, I've only been here through like eight or so movies, but like, it's really been a huge motivator to watch things that I never would have watched before and discover new movies. Um, so this has been a blast and I've enjoyed every brief part of it. Well, I have 100% loved having you here. Uh, and I am, I'm so proud of you. I think you're going to be awesome in Seattle. You're going to do great. And folks, this is not the last we're hearing of Michaela. She is going to be back. Yeah, not abandoning you. Not abandoning. She, we're definitely going to hear from her again. But uh, from now on, uh, at least, you know, for, for you're gonna uh, the foreseeable Roper future, it. I'm going to Richard Roper it. You are the new Richard Roper I'm, I'm Richard Roper-ing it. We are going to yeah. go with more of a rotating co-host format you're gonna here. You're going to get A.O. Scott. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Ben Lyons, everyone's favorite. He's coming to hang out for a while. Uh, no, Ben Lyons is not coming on here. 
But yeah, we're going to go with a rotating co-host format. So it, each week it's going to be me and somebody else who has signed up to talk about a different movie. So you're going to be gonna hearing... You're going to get to talk to, about movies with so many different people. And I'm excited about that. I'm excited about that idea. I'm going to be talking to lots of people and we're going to be getting lots of different perspectives and all kinds of things. So it's still going to be a lot of fun. Uh, and you are going to hear from Michaela again. Yeah. Absolutely. I already staked my claim on some upcoming picks. So ha ha, you it's, can't get rid of me. Ha, yes, yes. Can't get rid of her even if I wanted to, yeah. which I don't because you're the best. Um, well, anyway, uh, we will be signing off here. Uh, the movie that we are talking about next week is one that I have actually been very excited to see. And I've never seen it despite it being from one of my favorite filmmakers. I'm going to be talking about Ace in the Hole, a film by Billy Wilder starring Kirk Douglas. You haven't seen it? I have not what seen this. Billy Wilders? Uh, well, my very favorite movie of all time is The Apartment Aww, by Billy Wilder. So yeah, that is yeah, my yeah. very favorite movie. But obviously I've seen uh, uh, Some Like It Hot and Double Indemnity and all the big ones, you know. But I have not gotten around to Ace in the Hole. So I'm nice. very excited. Uh, and so check that out next week. Uh, I don't know who my guest on that is going to be yet, but it's going to be a lot of fun either way. It's a mystery. mystery. It's a mystery. (laughs) All right, everybody. We are heading out for now, and we will catch you next time. Goodbye. Bye.